0: We've well, already had the entire chapter one of Nahum read aloud, and so you see, we we start begin a new book today. The introduction to Nahum, or Nahum, Nahum. I don't know. I've heard it said both ways. Uh, I've heard it pronounced in Hebrew, so I'm just going to say whichever one. Feel like every time I come to it but not the Hebrew one okay so I'm not sure if it's proper to say Nahum or Nahum but it's a very interesting little book sort of as a time reference for you um I have to keep this in my brain because if not it, it sort of it sort of runs together on me and I can't remember uh, exactly why he's saying what he's saying but um Amos, Hosea, and Micah which we've just finished all three of those Jonathan just completed Micah for us all of those prophets have sort of been within the same time frame prophesying or warning of the coming judgment of God upon um, the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah in fact Micah and Hosea both prophesied all the way up very close to the time that Assyria did um, capture um, Israel along with Isaiah. Almost maybe one year away, they preached and prophesied until the Assyrian captivity. So that happened around 721 BC. If you're a if you're a historical um, numbers person and you like to keep up with that, again, you have to think it's it goes backwards. You know the the smaller the number, the closer to us it is. And so um, those prophets were prophesying uh, from mid to late 8th century up to this point, 721 B.C., when this capture happened. Um, And nearly 70 years later, in about 650 to 612 B.C., is when Nahum comes on the scene. So they've already been in captivity for almost 70 years when Nahum becomes an important figure 70 years into this judgment of God upon his people and he sends a prophet a little known one at least to us there's not a lot of history to be found out about Nahum really what we have right here in his book is about the only thing we know about him. And that's true of most of the minor prophets. You've probably noticed there's not a lot of historical background on them. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, says God does this intentionally so that we care less about the men and more about the Spirit of God who spoke through them. And that's probably true. The name begins this way. An oracle concerning Nineveh. Or if you're reading a King James Bible, the burden concerning Nineveh. Prophecies described as oracles or burdens declared that historical fulfillment is about to happen. A historical fulfillment of previous prophecies. You may remember that throughout these minor prophets we've not only been saying... um, that their preaching was to the people of that day but he was, they were also prophesying ahead hey judgment is coming some things are going to happen and they were prophesied God is going to judge his own people but also he's going to use his enemies to judge his people but eventually he's also going to judge the enemies and so a lot of this is coming to pass now and that's why Nahum calls his writing a burden or an oracle But specifically, he says, this is an oracle concerning Nineveh. Now, Nineveh at this time was the capital of Assyria. Assyria, remember, perhaps one of the greatest, if not the greatest, kingdoms ever on earth. And this should take you back to the very first prophet that we started with in this study, named Jonah, remember? Almost a hundred years prior to this, right out a hundred years or maybe even a little more, you remember Jonah was sent to Nineveh. He was sent to preach to that great city. Repentance. And we talked a lot about Jonah's message and his mission there and how the people of Nineveh actually repented. Started with the king, he heard Jonah's preaching and they repented And as a result, God stayed his judgment and they experienced great increase and prosperity even. But they still were very wicked and became more and more wicked. But God used, God still used these wicked people to judge his people. But now, Nahum comes on the scene to say, but now God's going to judge Nineveh. Because this time they don't repent. And we are reminded of why Jonah didn't want Nineveh to repent. He wanted God to destroy them. Because being a prophet, he knew that not only did he not like the Assyrians, but he knew that one day God was going to use them to bring judgment on his people. And he didn't want them to repent. That's why he sat on that hill waiting for the show. He wanted to see God destroy Nineveh. But then they repented instead, and God kept his promise. But that's where this is taking place. So we're leaving um, the small area where Israel and Judah are, and this is taking place in Nineveh. Of course, some of God's people were in Nineveh this time, they have been scattered. As God had promised, they would be because of their sinfulness and all the things that we've been hearing about over the last month or so that were going on in the kingdom of God. uh, Here on earth in Israel and Judah, people were practicing grotesque idolatry and sexual perversion, and they were acting just like the world. They were worshiping God as well as every other false (coughs) god that came their way. And so, even though this is in Nineveh, some of it is still to the people of God. And of course, some of it is to our benefit. It's like all of Scripture. But Nahum says, this is the book of the vision. It's a very descriptive book. And so, obviously, Nahum received this from God as a vision. And this is why he wrote it down as he received it. And calls it a written down vision. So unlike many of the prophecies that were just given by mouth originally and prophesied by mouth, Nahum took his vision and wrote it down. Much like the, the vision the Apostle John received and was told by our Lord, write down what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So Nahum wrote down what he received. This vision. And it says to us there, all this in the first verse, this vision is given to Nahum of Elkosh. The word Nahum means comfort or compassion. We've talked about all these minor prophets and their names because we don't know much about them so their name tells us at least something because names were given with intention somewhat... As a prophecy to show forth what these men or these people would be according to their name. Nahum means comfort or compassion. And Elkosh, nobody really knows where that was exactly, but it means God is severe. So it might be proper, and in fact, a book that I purchased a commentary to read on the book of Nahum was entitled severe compassion God is severe but the prophet is compassionate now this would seem ironic a book about severe compassion and in our candy coated world it certainly seems ironic even maybe oxymoronic if I can use that word it's contrary to what we think in our land of to use other people's terms, snowflakes, where everybody wins a trophy. We proclaim the love of God to the exclusion of all other attributes like severity and compassion or judgment or wrath, all these things that we just read about. Severity and compassion may not seem to belong together, but we must not miss the fact that God does chasten those whom He loves in order to purify them and set them apart from the world He hates. And He'll even use all that He has created, even the evil world, to accomplish His purposes. So even though severe compassion may not seem to belong together, when you read the Scriptures, you recognize it really does belong together. Because at times God is severe. And He is just, always, and he is always wrathful, and he is always jealous, as Nahum says, and yet he is compassionate and loving all at the same time. John Calvin pointed out so well that the the great thing about God is all of his attributes work perfectly together at all times. He doesn't have to stop being compassionate and judgmental and wrathful in order to be loving and merciful and gracious. I think that's why we not we're not able we aren't able to wrap our minds around this God who is so awesome because we think he has to be just like us. Well I can't be wrathful and judgmental and jealous and loving and merciful. No, but he can. All at the same time. But when you think about this, God uses severe compassion. He uses the enemies of the people of God to judge them, that doesn't seem right to us either. It just all seems backwards, but then we read places in the Scriptures like Proverbs 16 and 4, the Lord has made everything for His own purposes, even the wicked for the day of disaster. God uses all this creation for His own purpose. Paul sort of writing toward this idea in Romans 9 says what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory that's an amazing thought but it's one we need to keep in mind when we look around and say why does the world seem to prosper why do the wicked seem to do well. Don't you know that there were many in Judah and Israel thinking, well, why on earth is God blessing Assyria? Why would he bless Nineveh? Because he made Nineveh to accomplish his purposes. And if his purposes at this time were to judge his people and bring them to repentance, then so be it. Those vessels of wrath were being used to bring glory and honor to him and his people, through his people. And he does what he wishes, with whom he wishes. In fact, name says that too. In fact, let's look at what exactly he does say. Verses 2 through the beginning of verse 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. But the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He'll by no means clear the guilty. You realize much of modern evangelicalism would fear even reading those verses in their places of worship. Because what do you do about that? How do I explain a God who is vengeful, wrathful, jealous, and anger and does not clear the guilty? He's great in power. In fact, look at a little further down at verse 4. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. Well, first, the end of chapter uh, verse 3. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. <coughs> Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before Him. His, the hills melt. The earth heaves before Him world and all who dwell in it. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. And he even goes on to say in verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. And we'll talk more about that verse later next week probably. But this is a hard God to Describe and explain if you don't just let him explain himself. Which is why it's so important that we cannot fail to proclaim the attributes of God. All of them. All of them that we come across in Scripture. We cannot let people perish without a complete picture of God. We're sinning when we do that. If all we talk about is how loving God is and how merciful He is, and we leave out these facts, that he's also full of wrath and full of jealousy and vengeful, then we give people an incomplete picture of God. And we can't afford to do that. People need to know the truth. Though, as I said, this vision is ultimately aimed at Nineveh, it will also graze Israel. The truth of God and who He is will bring judgment upon God's people, but it will bring mercy. I mean, it will bring judgment upon God's enemies, but will bring mercy to His people. And that's what preaching always does, by the way. The Word is always bitter and sweet. To those who are perishing, it is damnation, but to those of us who are being saved, it is life. We can't lie and candy coat it because what God does, He does as we read in our catechism He does by His Spirit through His Word (coughs) and as we proclaim God as He has proclaimed Himself yeah, some people will say I don't like that, I don't like that God That's, that's not the kind of God I have pictured in my mind, that's not the kind of God I would worship but then there are others saying the church saying oh but there is no other God I want no other God. I don't want a God who would clear the guilty. You say, but wait, I thought that's what he's done to us. He's done that to us, but he did that through Jesus Christ. Somebody paid for our guilt. He he by no means clears the guilty. He doesn't clear us except through Jesus Christ. The guilt has been paid, the debt has been paid that's why we can say he is wrathful, perfectly wrathful he is perfectly just because in his justice he didn't just sweep sin under the rug he poured out his wrath and condemned and punished sin in Jesus Christ and given us grace and mercy but see you can't just proclaim the grace and mercy and leave out all the other, it makes no sense we have to tell the entire truth Yes, your sin is costly. And there may be times that the word is bitter. But it is sweet. It will be sweet to those who can hear and those who can understand. Jesus Christ is a stumbling block and a folly to some, but to those who believe He is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You remember, I think it's in Revelation 10, John was given a scroll by an angel reminiscent of Ezekiel. John said, when I ate it, it was sweet in my mouth, but it was bitter in my stomach because then I had to go preach to kings and leaders. Ezekiel said the same thing. I ate the scroll. It was sweet. But right before I went out to do what God had called me to do, it was bitter because the hand of the Lord was on me. It's that same idea. Everybody wants everybody to like them. I think that's human. We don't want to we don't want anybody to look at us and say, I don't I don't like you, I don't like what you say. But the truth is, when we proclaim the gospel, there will be many who say, I don't like that, I don't like the God that you're proclaiming. That's not a God that I have, they wouldn't say this, but this is the truth. That's not the kind of God I have built in my mind. That's not the God I worship. But it's the only God there is. It's the God of the Bible. And we have to be careful that we don't create in our minds and our hearts a God that's not like the God of the Bible. Because any God other than this God is an idol. See, that's what Israel couldn't grasp. And God is a jealous God. He will not allow his worship to be given to anybody else. And so when they're worshiping the idols of, the, of those around them, It angered God, and he had to judge that sin, and he still will. And there will be no God other than him. There is no God but him, and we can't build up any God in our minds even other than the one that is in the Bible. Somebody said it well. No matter whether you construct a God with tools or with theology, it's still a false God. So if your theology is jacked up, you still come up with an idol. I love that Nahum takes from Moses here. We read Hebrews 3 because I I wanted to take your mind there because Moses is a very important figure (coughs) in Old Testament and in Israel's history. Very, very important. Um, Used in the New Testament often because he was so important. He was a picture. He was was a, a type of Christ. But he quotes... Nahum does here, straight from Moses, from Numbers and um, from Exodus. He combines two scenes here. As I said, he's talking to Nineveh, but Israel's going to hear this, and they're going to be reminded yet again why their sin is so heinous, but in that they're also going to be reminded that their God is their Savior. So he says, the Lord is jealous and an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. I've already read this twice now, but he takes vengeance on his adversaries, keeps wrath for his enemies. He's slow to anger, great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He combines the scene from Numbers 13 and the scene from Exodus 32. You may recall that Exodus 32 is where Israel, waiting on Moses to come down after hearing from God and receiving the Ten Commandments, the law, they became impatient and they had Aaron to build them a golden calf. You Remember, that's the whole golden calf scene. And during that scene, God threatens to just wipe out his people because he's so sick of them and destroy them. And of course, Moses... In a Christ like fashion, steps in and says, For your name's sake, don't destroy them. Save them. And God does relent of his anger toward them because of an intercessor. And he doesn't destroy them. Numbers chapter 13 and 14, God's blessed them all the way through the wilderness. And he's brought them to the place he promised them. All they have to do is go in and take the land. And of course, the people, for lack of faith, failed to do so. And once again, God, His anger is kindled, and He's going to destroy them all. And He finally says to Moses, "I'm just going to kill all them. I'll make you great. I'll make an, I'll make your name great." And Moses intercedes again, and God relents of His anger because of the intercession of Moses. And of course, just such a beautiful picture there, um, and why Hebrews says. Hey, look at what Moses did, and we have one greater than Moses. I mean, as much as the one who builds the house is greater than the house, we have Christ. But I think it's important, as we get started into this book of Nahum, just to be reminded, as we're talking about a God of severe compassion, that he chastens his children along with the enemies, but he chastens his children in order to make them better and to purify them. And it's also a good reminder that though we don't like to think in these terms, some sins are more heinous than others. You know, I think we sometimes get into this mindset too much of trying to treat all sin the same. We're all sinners. That's true. And even last week, we looked at some passages where I wanted to make you aware that be cautious of thinking that uh, you're not very sinful when some of your sins are listed in the list with some sins that you think are really bad. But the truth is, there is some kind of hierarchy of sin and we need to be aware of it. I don't know where the lines are, but you can't read the Scripture and not realize that Israel sinning, Israel sinning, and then all of a sudden they did something that God said, I'm going to kill all of them. I mean, there was a difference. And I think it should make us aware just not to take sin lightly. And to be cautious when the Scripture in God looks at certain sins, and one being idolatry, and another being sexual sin, and there's others, that these seem to, I don't know, they seem to if it's proper to say, they seem to anger God more. And I think it should bring us to a place that we are more aware of what we're doing and how it affects God and not just the consequences here. I don't know if that makes sense, but When we look and see how God treats sin in the Bible, we need to be reminded of this fact. Now, in our catechism, it's not worded this way, but to try to show you what I'm talking about, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this way. Question 83. Are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Answer. Some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. The only reason I point that out is I think we just need to be aware. And don't fall into the trap of the world that, you know, we all just sin. God knows. Yeah, he does. And yeah, we all sin. But all sin is not the same. And it ought to bring us to a place of humility to recognize, wow, some of my sins are really heinous, and yet Jesus died for me and paid for my sin. But some sins are so heinous that it caused God at times to destroy His people. Now, I don't think that means destroy them, unsave them, and now they're in hell. But it ought to make us aware that sin is very serious. And it can take you to places... That it took Israel to where all of a sudden they, they find themselves in, in, with temple prostitutes, with bells in the house in the temple of God, and worship, worshiping them along with the way they worship the real true God. A golden calf that Aaron says, literally, here's the God that brought you out of Egypt. God is a gracious and loving God, but He's also wrathful, just, and jealous. And he's <laughs> jealous over you because He loves you. So, much like a parent, in Hebrews uh, chapter 12 points this out. Even an earthly father chastises his child because he doesn't want him to go astray. How much more does God chastise His people so that they become, are partake in His holiness, is what it says. And through that chastising, yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. (coughs) We have to be mindful of that. God has called us to holiness. Yes, we, we can't be that, because we have a sinful nature and a sinful our nature has changed, we have a sinful flesh that we deal with, but yet we can't just cast that off and say, "Eh." God knows. I have a friend that says this to me, every time I see him almost, it drives me crazy. Well, you know, I'm just always going to be that sinner. But you tell me you're saved. I mean, don't, don't you hope that God does something about that? At least you can see little increments of man, I'm wretched and I am a sinner, but man, God has saved me from this and I see how he's He's moved me away from it. I'm not what I used to be. I mean, that's the testimony of the church for 2,000 years. Not what I'm going to be, but praise God I'm not what I was. I mean, there is some change in my life. God has not just saved me, but He has been saving me, and He will save me for all eternity. So there's something different. And I think this preaching of Nathan, this vision, is aimed, as I said the bitterness is aimed at Nineveh and God's people hear it and they're reminded of the bitterness of their actions, the actions of their fathers in the wilderness and their actions now that have brought them into captivity. But they're reminded as he says later on that God is love. Love. And he does love his people. He is good, verse 7. And he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. <coughs> the name of the Lord is a righteous tower, the Bible says, and the, uh, is a tower and the righteous run to it and are safe. We do have a refuge. We do have a strong tower. We do have a God. And look, if we're going to run to a God that's going to save us and protect us, it needs to be the one who is wrathful and just and powerful and mighty. So that he really can save us from our enemies. And he does. And that's the good news. And we're going to see that Nahum is good at pointing forward also to the Messiah. We see him even here in these few verses. It's not just all mean and guilt-ridden. There is the good news in here. But we need to be reminded, as we have been throughout these minor prophets, there's a need we had a need for a savior we needed God to redeem us we needed him to step in if not we will find ourselves just like Israel worshiping everything that comes along in the idols with the idols with the temple prostitutes we'd be right there doing the same thing if God doesn't save us and keep saving us and give us repentance we need him Israel needed them, and they got them. And and God's going to deliver them just like he promised. He delivered them into judgment like he promised. He's going to deliver them out like he promised. And he's also going to destroy his enemies, ultimately. This is a a powerful picture of God destroying. He destroyed them and like people didn't find them for thousands of years. He so destroyed them. Nobody even believed that Assyria existed the way the Bible said for a long time because God so ultimately destroyed them. That's what happened to the most powerful kingdom of man that's ever been known. In a matter of years, God was so destroyed that nobody could even find them. So that's the God that we serve. And we ought to fear Him. Okay? Not just reverent, reverentially feel him, fear Him. We ought to fear Him. He's a powerful, mighty God. But the Bible says in the Psalms, there is forgiveness with you that you might be feared. We fear him in forgiveness. We recognize that he could destroy us, but he saved us instead. Well, keep that in mind as we go through this. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray your blessings on the teaching of it. God, correct us if we're wrong. But help us to be mindful of who you are, all your attributes. And do keep this sobering thought in mind that all sin is not the same. Yes, we're all sinners, just the same. We've all sinned and need a Savior. We're all guilty. We have inherited from our very first Father, we have inherited a sinful nature. But our sin is serious, and I pray you'd help us to take it so and be cautious of what we get involved in and where we go, where we allow it to take us. It doesn't take but a few minutes scrolling through the news, even the local news, to see how far sin has carried people that we even know. Maybe people in our family. We've seen sin that has destroyed people. We want you to be just. We're, we're thankful that there is a place called heaven and a place called hell. We're thankful that because you're just, you will not clear the guilty But because you are merciful and gracious, you have provided a way that your people can be saved. Even though they are sinners. You've exchanged the righteous and the just for the unjust. Jesus, that you might bring us to God. And we praise you for that and we stand in awe of it. And we all need to acknowledge this. This is not just... Uh, looking out and and saying, some of you need to consider your sin. We all need to consider how serious our sin might be. and, And repent of it. And God trusts you because of Jesus to save us from it. And take it away from us. God, make us holy and like the Hebrew writer says, give us that peaceable fruit of righteousness that we might rest in You. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.